0: Uh, Well, thank you, Kevin, and uh, thank you, Greg, for leading this morning, and worship team for leading. Uh, I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point. Uh, Thanks for being here in person and those online. Good to see you guys virtually online. Um, You're catching us in part four of a five-part series we're calling Doing Good. Um, Now, to get started this morning, I want to take you back to when I used to work at a restaurant locally, and someone, when I was, um, let's say, 14 or 15 years old, someone dared me to drink a raw egg. You ever do that? They're like, and I'm like, no, I'm not gonna do that. They're like, well, okay, here's the deal. I'll give you 20 bucks. I'm like, ooh. Yeah, that changes the game all of a sudden, doesn't it? Like, uh, okay. Now that was, so that was that was when I was like 14, 15. That was like 100 years ago for me. So that $20 went even further then. That was like two tanks of gas back then almost, right? And so I'm like, okay, fine, like I'm in. So I cracked the egg into the glass and I, Put it in my mouth and go back like that and they're so disgusted they leave the room like oh i can't believe you did that blah, 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 blah. and so then what do i do spit it out yeah spit out the egg they still gave me 20 bucks and i felt you know okay i got 20 bucks that was awesome i don't know what it is with you but here's here's why i bring up that, that story um motivation works like, motivation is a really important thing. As long as we, if we can track and find what motivates people to do things, all of a sudden we can get on track or off track. And there may be something with our family and food, I don't know, but it was maybe a decade ago that my oldest daughter, Megan, and she's okay with me telling this story, by the way, we were at a, true story, but she's not here this morning, so you'll never know, haha, no, um, she, we were at an Italian restaurant with my family and, um, and her uncle, um. As we were waiting for the pizza to come, there was a salad there, and, and, and the salad had olives in it. And her uncle was like, Negan, I dare you to eat an olive. Right? Now, she hates, like, most food, um, actually. Very, very picky eater. But um, she's like, no, I'm not going to eat an olive. Well, now we need a little motivation. She's like, he's like, all right, here's the deal. I'll buy you ice cream afterwards if you eat the olive. All right? So this was is, this is a decade ago. She was, like, 12 or 13 years old. Um, she's like, ooh, all right. So she takes the olive... And, it, and then, like, for five minutes, labors over whether to eat the olive or not. I mean, this great consternation at the table, like, oh, I don't know if I can. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Finally eats the olive, basically gags, seems like she's going to throw up all over the table, drinks it down, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and her uncle was like, okay, Megan, great, you got ice cream. To which then her grandpa was like, well, I'm going to buy everybody ice cream afterwards anyway. So, whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, and so that was, that was a special, special moment. But motivation, motivation works is all that I'm trying to say. You know, m- motivation can get us to do things that otherwise we wouldn't do. It can keep us on track. If you're a business leader, you already know that. That's important to find out what motivates your employees and to find how it works. Because if people are on track with their motivation, a lot can get done. You also know this, that motivation, when it's wrong or when it's off, bad things can result. Um, I heard the story um, Uh, From my daughter Megan, as well, of a friend of hers at college who came to Lancaster Bible College because she was dating a guy. That was her motivation. Well, now they broke up, and now she's like, eh, the school's okay, but eh, like, eh, it wasn't really why I came. And she said, I wouldn't recommend going to a school because you're looking to date somebody, all right? Motivation is funny. Like, it can be off, and it can be off. So, when it's off, and here's the problem when it's off, we can actually get results. It can still look fine, like we got results, but at the end of the day, we don't have a long-standing ability to keep performing. When our motivation is off, and the reason I want to talk about this is what motivates us in the series called Doing Good. We've been talking about how it is that God, through the Old Testament and the New, is setting a context for how the most vulnerable among us should be cared for, what it means to do that, both from a large level and a personal level. And my belief is that most people who call themselves Christian want to and have in some way served the poor in some way and means. But for some of us, the motivation or what drives us to do that sometimes can be just a little bit off. And when it's a little bit off, we actually still can get results but we can't get it in the long term. I think three things happen when our motivation is off. We run out of energy over the long haul, number one. Number two, we also get jaded toward those we serve if we think that their behavior should change as a result of our service to them. And thirdly, we also can grow into feeling superior as the people who are the givers, the one who stand up for those who are down here. We're the ones who, when our motivation is off, some really terrible things can happen to us. Here's what I believe. There's actually two primary biblical motivations for serving the most vulnerable. I believe two primary biblical motivations for serving the most vulnerable. And why that matters is this. Because if we get the motivations right, I'm convinced that we will be more grounded in our faith and in our world. And we will be saved from ourselves. Meaning... What I think then is if we get the motivations wrong, we will be consumed by ourselves. We will, like a black hole in the universe, be kind of sucked in on ourselves, and the energy that we give to our world will consume us ultimately. And so I think this is terribly important to ask the question, not should I serve the most vulnerable, or is this what God might want, or even does the Bible teach that we should care for the most vulnerable? Last week I tried to make the case that Jesus indeed has a preference a preference for serving the poor. So my case this morning isn't just, is that true? My question this morning is really, what drives it? Why should we serve the most vulnerable around us? And why does that matter? And here's why I think that matters. So today I want to start this way. I want to start just by acknowledging the world that we're in um, is a world that, you know this already, is very relativistic and very, um, the the absolutes of the world are not always there. In other words, we have a struggle when it comes to how we serve the poor our world can struggle to make a case that um, there's one clear reason why everyone should serve the poor if you're in a morally relativistic world it's difficult to make the case that we should serve the poor and here's why because if you're in a relativistic world the reason that people who got power got power is because they got it by survival of the fittest okay Like, this is the way that, quote-unquote, evolution works. It's that the weaker are down here and the stronger up here. And so it's very difficult to make a claim that we should serve the poor if you don't have a biblical framework in my mind, because the reason people are poor or disadvantaged is because they weren't strong enough to get ahead And so why would you be motivated to serve the weakest among you if survival of the fittest works? Why is that? So here's what ends up happening. Now, I don't subscribe to that personally. I think you know that. But I'm just saying in the world today in which we live, there are, I think, two common sources of motivation that people use in this moralistic, in this relative world. The first is this one, and you'll see this on TV all the time. We'll call it sad and sentimental stories. In other words, how is it that we get people motivated to serve the poor and the most vulnerable? The first is by telling a sad story. Uh, you may see this during sporting events. You know the commercial comes on, it's 30 seconds of softer music, slow motion, children in poverty struggling with basic needs, and the, let's like let's make this a sad time. Let's make it sentimental. Some of you look to flip the channel. Then we looked at this kind of okay, I've seen that before, and I don't want to address that. You know we move on. Sad, sentimental stories. There was a philosopher, Richard Rorty, He put it this way. He said such stories, repeated and varied over the centuries, have induced us, the rich, safe powerful people to tolerate and even cherish powerless people, because then they play a role. They're the ones that we get to help. It's great. So sad, sentimental stories. Now, sad, sentimental stories, (laughs) they don't really work to deal with the biggest issues in our world. In other words, was it sad and sentimental stories that moved our country out of slavery? Was it sad and sentimental stories that got people activated to say, no, slavery is wrong? Clearly it wasn't, and this is where the second common source of motivation is, and that is political action with strength. You go back to the Civil War area, there was the Emancipation Proclamation written, and then the South said, yeah, enforce it. I dare you. To which we're like, all right, bring it on. And then everyone brought it on, and people killed each other rather than changing their minds. <laughs> this is the reality. How can we get people out of slavery? It wasn't through just telling more sad, sentimental stories. That didn't change people. Well, and then political action with strength is what we have to do, right? If that side doesn't work, we have to do this. Well, you have to ask the question, does either side really change the heart? Do either of these really address the condition of the human heart? To which I would say, no, they don't really. You can have a winner and you can have a loser, but I'm not sure the heart has fundamentally been changed. And so when we think about how is it that God comes to the motivation for serving the poor. In other words, what are the common sources or biblical sources of motivation? That's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to get it from a different angle. So here we go. The first one I want to talk about, just these two sources with some implications and go from there. The first is this. We think about what are the two biblical motivations for doing good or serving the poor or serving the most vulnerable. The first one, we'll put this way. It is embracing God's image in man. All right, this is where it starts for me, and this is where I think it starts in the Scriptures. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we read about every man being made in God's image, every woman being made in God's image, everyone being made in God's image. Image conveys an art and a craftsmanship, that we are beautiful, intentional creatures. Now, I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it around this issue. He says it this way. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, Snub and exploit. You ever think about it that way? Now, this sounds good up here. This is kind of cool. But now start plugging that into your world right now. Those who are in poverty right now. These are people, they're not mere mortals. Criminals. Single moms. Anybody, regardless of sexual orientation or political affiliation. Economic situation repeated addictive behaviors, people I'd rather avoid, members of my family, maybe people in the same aisle or one or two up from you. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. You think he's right. Image conveys art, craftsmanship, beauty. But image also conveys likeness. That God's image in man says that each of us, male or female, shares a likeness of God. Which is why, which is why, in Genesis we read about why murder is wrong, for example. Now I think you all know it's wrong, but Genesis 9, 5, and 6. For your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting, for it's in his own image that God has made man. In other words, the reason that God gives why murder is wrong is you're taking from someone the very life that God has given to them. It's as if we're taking something from God and he's given them the likeness. Even when we talk to one another and the language we use to talk to one another. In James, James talks about the tongue this way. He says, with it, that is with the tongue, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Again, the image of God and man as a motivating factor for how I talk to you and how you talk to me. Now, with that being said, let me put it this way. I think most of us are like, okay, that makes sense, I understand that. Cool, here's how Tim Keller says it. He says, the image of God carries with it the right to not be mistreated or harmed. You ever think about it that way? Because people are made in God's image, it's as if they carry around with them almost a, a passport or a, something that gains them entrance into a world in which people who are God followers should treat all of them with, with equity, with freedom, with openness, with love, with care, no harming, no mistreating, simply because they're made in God's image. Now, let me push on this for a minute, a little bit if I can. Um, There are two implications. Can I just drive a little deeper on this for a minute in two ways? I guess you can say no, or you can walk out, or you can go to sleep, or you can do whatever you want. It's another way for me to say I'd like to just push on two things with a little bit a little bit more force if I can for a minute because I don't think anyone really disagrees with this like in our minds like okay this makes sense let me push on two areas there are two places where this impacts more the image of god impacts us in two additional ways let me talk about the first one this way i think the image of god if we believe it's true the image of god should impact our prejudices, and our view of race. Okay? Now, a long time ago, long time ago, there was a Greek philosopher, Aristotle. He lived in the 300s BC. Here's what he had to say. Listen to his words for a minute, okay? This is well before any of our time, I'm pretty sure. He said, it is clear, as he was speaking about the conditions at his time, it is clear then that some men are by nature free. They're just born free men, and others, slaves. Here's his assumption, that people are born into the, born into the world, slaves. <laughs> oh, you're a slave, you're free. And he goes on that for these latter, slavery is both expedient and right. Morally correct. Now, this is so long ago, so long ago, over 2,000 years ago. Because this world in which Aristotle lived was a world full of slavery. And as he looked around him, he thought, yeah, you deserve to be a slave. You were born that way. Oh, you deserve to be a master. You were born that way. That's just the way the world works. Thankfully, none of us ever live that way now, right? Thankfully, none of us ever carry the shadows of this around in each of us, right? Thankfully, we don't see anything like this anymore. Oh, those people, they're like that. Yeah, that's the way they are. (laughs) That's just the way they are. By nature, that's who they are. What, did you expect them to get a job and keep a job? That's who they are. What did you expect? Those jobs, those jobs, it's both expedient and right that those people get and keep those jobs and other people get those jobs. That's just expedient and right. It's just the way the world works. And our biblical framework pushes on this hard. Martin Luther King put it this way. He said, every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God, and this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation, that there are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a bass black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. He says, one day we will learn that. One day we will learn that. And I hope we will one day. And certainly we're making strides, and certainly we have strides to go. Now, I was listening to a podcast the other day sent by a friend. Uh, The New York Times interviewed a pastor in Arkansas. And it reminded me of me just a little bit, because he's about my age. He's a year younger than me. But he's been in his church about 20 years, which is about how long I've been here as well. It's a smaller community, um, farming community. Um, and so as I listened to him, like there's a lot of similarities. And so I, was, I appreciated what he had to say. But here's what he reflected on in his church in the past couple of years. He said, I used to be, he said, I can walk into my church and as a pastor, I can talk about our shared sin of pride. I can talk about our shared sin of gluttony, even sexual immorality or perversions. I can talk about laziness. I can talk about a number of these things, he said. But as soon as I talk about racism, he said, the temperature in the room changes. And it goes from, we hear you, Pastor, to how dare you? How dare you? How dare you think that I'm like that? Not even I disagree. It's like now you are the enemy, that you would even bring that up. And it was such a strong response It surprised him. Such a strong response. I just want to reflect personally, over the past few years, I've heard some things from people who are longtime church members, publicly proclaiming Christ as their Savior. I've heard one man tell me, he was in his late 50s, long-time, generational church guy. He said, you know, that church, just down here, you would know the name if I told it to you, that church started going downhill once the blacks went there. Heard another individual in his mid-30s saying, yep. He said, that community right over there, once the Hispanics moved in and start taking the jobs, it's going downhill. My daughter's car was broken a year ago, dropped the transmission. I went to a guy and I was talking to a friend about it. Um, this individual, again, who is a long church member and, again, public follower of Christ. Still to this day, each of these three gentlemen are. He said, listen, just list it on Facebook Marketplace. A Mexican will probably buy it because every Mexican is a mechanic. Now, I'm reflecting to you just three things that I have heard over the years. Three separate things from individuals. And this is only what people were willing to talk to a pastor about. And so when I go back to what Aristotle said 2,000 plus years ago, oh, some people were born that way. That's just who they are. I'm just saying there are sometimes some ugly things in the corners of each of our hearts that might need to be revisited. And if that brings you some pain and some anger, okay, that's Okay. Because there's something there that needs to be looked at. And I just want to encourage you, before we move too quickly past the power of the image of God in man, before we just agree with it intellectually, I pray that we would also allow it to impact us in how we see our prejudices, and even how we see people of different racial and ethnic background and diversity around us. Okay? That's the one way that it impacts us. The second way is... Our theology of the image of God impacts our view of our accomplishments. Here's what I mean by that. If you were born, as Tim Keller in the book Generous Justice writes, and I've told you before I really am using that as a framework for much of my talk here in this series. As he writes in there, if you were born in 13th century Tibet on a mountaintop and you worked just as hard as you work right now, you would most likely have a portion, a small portion, of the same amount of things that you have accrued to this moment in your life. And so for us to look at the things that we have accomplished and the ways that we have accrued possessions, material possessions, financial stability, his case would be, and I agree with him very much, that the more that we understand that God has made man in his image and that comes under the fact that God is a creator and has created all. If God has created all, then what he has allowed me to do to be born into this moment in time, in the West, where my hard work can be multiplied over and over in a way that it would not be multiplied over and over if you were born somewhere else. When I put myself in that mindset and understand that, I now have a framework where I can be just with my accomplishments, Because those of us who think, well, if only they would go to work more, if only they would learn to live on a budget, if only they would work as hard as I work, are so naive to think that somehow that I deserve the things that I have been given, where it's actually God is the creator who has created this world and he has placed us here in this generation and this time. So that the things that I have, Those who live most justly know that our possessions in a way belong to the community around us because this is where God has placed us. And so being stingy with my things is not just stinginess, but it is injustice. It's recognizing, yes, the the world's goods are not equally distributed, yes, but I have a job, a role to play. God, as the creator of all, has placed me here in this time that I may be free with that. And the freer we are with that, the more I believe we're in alignment with what it means to believe that all people are made in God's image and this world is under his creative power. Okay, So, a lot there. Here we go. Two biblical sources of motivation. Number one, embracing God's image in man and letting it push on us maybe a little bit deeper than just up here in our mind. The second is this the second biblical motivation is this that is experiencing God's grace and redemption. Experiencing God's grace and redemption. Now, here's what I mean by that that um, the more that we can come to terms with the condition of our souls before God, the more our hearts, naturally, just naturally, have an affinity toward and a care for those who are the most vulnerable in and around us. Uh, I've used a number of passages in the Old Testament uh, during this series to try to make the case of God's interest from the Old to the New Testament for caring for the poor. Isaiah 58, Deuteronomy 10. uh, You may remember in Isaiah 58, um, God speaks to the nation of Israel. He says, why why are you bringing your fast before me? Like, why are you bringing these things of worship and then you go out the next day and you still exploit your workers? Like, like don't, don't do that. I mean, don't, don't bring your best worship services and continue to exploit your workers. Like, what I want for justice is for you to go out and provide justice for people here, not, not to come worship and then go do the opposite. And so we read about these things over and over again. And, and as we look at them in the Old Testament, here's how Keller summarizes it, and I love it. And he puts it this way and this is very direct, this is just very direct, people who fast and pray ritually, but still show pride and haughtiness, which is kind of a, like, I'm better than you, and I don't care about you, toward the poor and needy, reveal that no true humbling, no true humbling has ever penetrated their hearts. If you look down at the poor and stay aloof from their suffering, you've not really understood or experienced God's grace. This is a strong statement. This is a really strong statement from Keller. There's not really any um, wiggle room there he's not saying eh. it's it's just strong like when we and if we fast and pray ritually but still show pride <laughs> and a, a disconnect between the poor in our community he'll say it reveals that actually no true humbling has ever penetrated your heart it's never penetrated it just it, it, it hasn't penetrated and the reason for that the reason for that is because our spirits may not have ever quite matched yet the way Jesus described them. See, Jesus described our spirits this way. He said, blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit. He says that blessed are, goes on and on, but blessed are the poor in spirit. It's an interesting choice of words. And I might think sometimes for me, and I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel, I have felt and I have experienced people who, and myself at times, being uh, middle class in spirit, <laughs> not poor in spirit. Middle class in spirit says, "Listen, I um, and I'm doing some good things, I'm doing some good things. I'm not lying a bunch, just a little bit, not a bunch, right? I mean, I, I'm generally on time to things that I say I'm going to be on time for. I show up to work, consistent. I'm contributing well in the community. Like I'm doing some good things, and I'm not altogether terrible. Like I'm just not altogether terrible. Yeah, you know, just not altogether bad. The poor in spirit mentality." the poor in spirit mentality, What what that is signifying is that someone who has sat there in the mirror and seen the desperation, the desperation of my own soul before God, and says, I am poor, like I have not got the resources in me to deserve what God has given me. I do not have the capacity within me. I have been saved from so much. I am spiritually bankrupt. I don't have a thing. I don't have the capacity to be adopted into the palace and the kingdom of God, to be brought in under the the king of the universe, into his family. What do I have to bring to that? I have got nothing. I've got nothing at all to bring to that. This poor in spirit who has felt the lostness of feeling I cannot get To god on my own i can't get there and the sadness and desperation that comes from that space in our soul and when we see that before god i do not have any capacity to be saved (laughs) which is why well keller will write it this way again it's strong when christians who understand the gospel see a poor person they realize they are looking into a mirror they're looking into a mirror This is who we are. This is who I am in my soul. I live day to day. I don't have the resources. I make a bunch of mistakes. I wish I would have done differently. And when I see people who do all those same things, I don't look down on them. I say, you are me, and I am you. And I've experienced the kind of grace in the gospel that moves my heart in affinity and love and care. And is drawn to the very people that I am most like in spirit. Those who are desperate for help. Who need resources. Because that, I realize, is me. Is me. So, from the beginning, here's what I said today. I think there are two primary biblical motivations for serving the most vulnerable. Embracing Embracing God's image in man, and all of what that means, and then experiencing God's grace and redemption in my own heart. Here's what I think that does for us. If we get the motivations right, we will be more grounded in our faith and in our world. We will be saved from ourselves. We'll be saved from thinking too much of ourselves. We'll be saved from getting too much for ourselves. We'll be saved from leading our companies, from leading our families, from leading the next generation into a version of Christianity that misses, that we are placed here under God's creative rule, under his sovereign care, but that our role here, being stewards of what he's entrusted to us so that all people who are made in God's image will feel the love and care regardless of their ethical decisions their moral choices but will feel and sense there's a safe place here there's a god there's a god who's loved them and might love me i think this will ground us and save us from ourselves and so i have a couple questions to wrap up number one is this do i know what motivates me do you know what motivates you you know some of us serve in different ways financially in volunteers, in volunteer ways, in friendships with, with folks who are most vulnerable. Do I know what really motivates me? Is there a sense of duty or obligation? Uh, is there conditions attached to our care? Um, you know, what is it that motivates me? Because I'm convinced that if our motivation is wrong, not unlike the girl who went to school because she was dating her boyfriend, you can get results, and she will get a degree. And later on down the line, no one will look at her and say, you went to a bad school but she will know her heart wasn't really in it. She wasn't really there, just wasn't right. She wasn't centered on it. She wasn't happy, she wasn't satisfied. Do I know what motivates me? And let me ask you another question if I could put it this way. <laughs> this is a little more direct. Does anything motivate me? Does anything motivate me? Does anything motivate me to care for the most vulnerable? Am I really even motivated in this space? If I can ask that directly. This is not an accusation, it's a question does anything actually motivate me? Or am I concerned about getting my own and getting enough for my family? Does anything motivate me? Because I'm concerned if it doesn't, I'm concerned for the condition of our own hearts because I think the gospel transforms us and softens us. It makes us poor in spirit where we see what God has done for us. And recognizing the image of God in man moves us to get rid of our judgment and our criticism. It gets us away from what Aristotle said hundreds and hundreds of years ago. No, there was no one who was born like that. There's no one who deserves that, and other people deserve that. No, no, no. What motivates me, and does anything actually motivate me? Last one is this. Is there one point of tension? Is there one point of tension from this morning for you? Something that you said, oh, you know what? I don't think he should have said that. You know, I don't agree with that at all. You know, that was very critical. That was judgmental. It may have been. You may be right. Or you may say, you know, that was really helpful. That was insightful. I'm not sure about that one. That one hit me funny. That one may have hit me in a way that I'm not sure what to do with it, but I'm going to remember that. What is that for you this morning? That's all I'm going to ask. What is that point of tension? Because that might need to be explored for a minute. Give it a minute. Chase it down. You disagree? Great. Why? You agree? Okay. What next? What is that one point of tension for you from this morning? You're saying, that was a little, mm. give it a minute and chase it down. Because what I want for you, what I want for me, I want right motivations that move me, to ground me in this world, in my faith, so that people who I interact with and who you interact with can see the love of God in me and in you, and that my heart, not unlike Jesus it can be poor in spirit, so that I can care and love for those around us and we can do good in the right way. Will you pray with me? Our good God and heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us here this morning as we engage this topic of what motivates us to care for the most vulnerable around us. I pray that you would renew in us really a sense of the depth of our own lostness and sin and failure. I pray that you would help us to see again how we have come to, at times, be middle class in spirit, be okay to accept some of your gifts but understand that it's also because I'm not a bad person, you know? I pray that you would break that away from us that we can truly feel and experience the depth of the redemption that we have experienced so that those who have been forgiven much will love much. Help us to do good with the right motivations correcting us along the